Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, August 14th, marks our 130th program. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Diagnosis Clarifications in the Outpatient Setting. I'm joined today by my familiar co-host at left there of your screen, Laurie Prescott. Laurie is the CDI Education Director for us here at Actus in Middleton, Massachusetts. You probably recognize Laurie as the developer and lead instructor for our Actus Bootcamp line, as well as our lead subject matter expert. She's a former CDI manager and a nursing manager, and I'm very pleased to have her back on the program. So welcome, Laurie. Thanks, Brian. Okay. Next, I'd like to introduce today's special guest. This is his uh, debut on the Actus podcast. We have with us uh, James Manns, MD. Dr. Manns is a consultant in spine and neurological surgery with the Mayo Clinic Health System in Wisconsin, where he serves as physician chair of the Mayo Enterprise Outpatient CDI Subcommittee, physician vice chair for the Mayo Enterprise Inpatient CDI Subcommittee, and physician advisor of the Mayo Clinic Problemless Stewardship Committee. Uh, Dr. Manns also serves as a member of our CCDSO committee, our new uh, Certified Clinical Documentation Specialist Outpatient Certification. He's actually the first guy I've ever pinned the CCDSO pin on. I got to do that this past May at the conference when we met uh, face-to-face, and I'm very pleased to have him on his first Actus podcast. So welcome, Dr. Mance. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Brian and Laurie, and thanks for including me on today's conversation. I actually... Uh, wear that pin with pride and uh, know that I was the, actually the very first one to get it. So thanks, Brian. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you, you're an honorary member. You, you, you earned it after all the time you put it on, on the, he, on the he's committee. Also the, he's also the nicest neurosurgeon I know. I'm just throwing that in. <laughs> well, one secret is I'm actually an orthopedist hiding ah. in a neurosurgery office. So. <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. Okay. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and um, let's see, where is this poll here? There we go. Start with a poll question related to today's topic, as I always do, and I'll ask our listeners to pertain the option that best pertains to them. So we're asking today, what outpatient diagnoses are your most frequent source clarifications? And your options are... Uh, and unfortunately, this poll only allows five options. I know there's probably legion, but um, we're asking, uh, is it cancers? Is it diabetes and or obesity? Uh, is it disorders, for example, substance use or major depressive, et cetera? Um, other? So you have the option of sending me your other in our question chat pod. And if you would like to send in what you're clarifying in the outpatient setting, I'd love to see them and I'll try to maybe incorporate some of those into the show. Um, or is your organization not involved in outpatient CDI? So again, what outpatient diagnoses are your most frequent source of clarifications? We're allowing you to answer either cancers, diabetes or obesity, 
disorders, substance use, major depressive, et cetera. Other, please send those in, or you're not involved in outpatient CDI. All right, we've got, looks like we've got about 70% of our audience that has voted. So I'm gonna go ahead and uh, close this out at this time, get those last minute in. And we will, of course, come back uh, to these to this poll after our interview today with, with uh, Dr. Manns. All right, so thanks, Dr. Manns, for being a part of the ACTUS podcast and coming on the program. Um, as I mentioned on our last show, uh, these next three shows today and the next two after will be run-ups to the early bird deadline of the ACTUS Symposium Outpatient CDI. You probably saw the landing screen for our listeners that are um, on our web version of the program. Um, this is a one-of-a-kind specialty conference. It's only our second conference we've offered outside of our national conference. Um, this is dedicated to CDI in the outpatient setting. We're holding it November 14th and 15th in, in beautiful Austin, Texas. That I've, I've never been there. Um, looking forward to getting there myself. And Dr. Manns, you'll be speaking at the program in a session entitled Clinical Considerations for Effective Outpatient and Ambulatory Efforts. It's a session on some of the most commonly identified improvement opportunities you guys are seeing in the outpatient setting. Uh, but before we get to some of those clinical review opportunities, I thought we could start with a kind of a brief overview of the outpatient CDI program at Mayo. Um, you know, uh, no two CDI programs are alike, and that's true even of inpatient, which has been around a lot longer, but even especially so in outpatient. So. Curious, um, and hopefully you can re just relay some brief information to our audience about you know how long you've been in this area, what your process is. Um, for example, I know you, I, I don't believe you guys are querying physicians like in live time or maybe at all more educational and, and some of the basics, basic metrics for success you're monitoring. Sure. So. Uh, Mio's involvement in this space is actually uh, pretty recent. Uh, it actually started as a, a pretty small program in one region in the health system. The health system has four entities that are associated with the destination practice in uh, Rochester and Minnesota. Uh, that was in 2016. Uh, I think we had 12 locations and maybe 120, 140 providers that were in scope. We're now a fully uh, functional uh, operational unit. We support 60 locations. There's over 1,100 physicians and we actually cover three states. And in the fall, we're expanding to another 200 providers as we move into the community medicine practice at the Rochester destination site. So we're, we're growing and we're kind of learning as we go. <clears throat> our work uh, currently focuses on supporting our primary care providers, which number over 500. And when we bring in the uh, the the community medicine practice at Rochester will be over 700. And our strategy is really consider the providers the key to long-term success. Uh, outpatient and inpatient CDI have a lot of common principles, but uh, there are some major operational differences to consider. Instead of a handful of inpatient facilities that we have uh, in the health system, and they're relatively contained. We have 60 ambulatory locations, as I noted, and it's over a very large uh, geographic footprint. We have perhaps thousands or to tens of thousands of inpatient encounters versus hundreds of thousands of encounters on the outpatient side. And I, another way to kind of quantify it is that in one month, we'll have more risk-based ambulatory encounters come our way than we'll have 
inpatients in an entire year. So even with a small army of CDS and CDI staff, we can't cost-effectively cover the entire practice if we don't have uh, provider support. So one of our key strategies is for our staff to support that practice engagement in two ways. Uh, the most important, uh, we feel, are the pre-encounter conversations about converse, uh, consideration of potential conditions found on pre-visit reviews, along with information about pertinent drop conditions and Drop conditions are defined as risk-adjusted conditions that were documented and coded in a prior billing year and not yet captured this year. Uh, we've found that that pre-visit review to be highly effective, and it gives our staff the opportunity to educate the provider on the EMR tools that are actually built to support this space, but uh, many of the providers didn't even know that they were there. So we're, we're really just trying to provide them with the resources and tools uh, to be successful. The second component we have is that we provide a safety net of sorts uh, by stopping risk payer-based encounters on a post-visit pre-bill basis. So we have risk-adjusted coders or trained coders that will review encounters before they are sent out for final bill to uh, add codes that have been documented but the provider failed to code for, or we'll also modify or remove codes that aren't supported by the documentation. And we actually quantify that information uh, that those coders are doing so that our pre-review staff can then use that as information on the next upcoming visit with their provider to give them timely feedback and uh, identify kind of, kind of those common themes of opportunities to improve so that you can avoid the error in the future. Um, our focus has been primarily proactive, uh, Brian, so we, we rather than doing post-visit record clarification, it's not that we don't, that querying isn't important, we obviously know it is, but there is sort of a practical nature to this. The reality is that more encounters stop for secondary review than we can possibly handle, <clears throat> and to avoid enormous accounts receivable, we currently release at end of day more than half of those encounters that we didn't have the time to get to. So if we took additional time, uh, we're spent on holding uh, some encounters to get feedback or changes in the documentation and then tracking that, uh, we just wouldn't, it would just uh, sort of backlog us even further. So at our current maturity of our program, it's been sort of a conscious decision not to go on post-visit clarifications. That doesn't mean we wouldn't engage in that or consider it later. It's just at this point in time, it's not a an effective way for us to focus our efforts and there you know we also have the philosophy that most of these patients have chronic disease so we we look they're often going to come back on a future visit and we're going to try to capitalize on that future visit to capture the condition rather than um, kind of hang on the past smart yeah that's um and it's understandable i mean geez 60 60 locations hundreds of thousands of encounters uh, 700 providers you, you, it has to be that way but I, I do like your discussion about how you're educating them and using right from that that coded data to provide uh, education for the physicians it's a great process yeah it is it's a i bet a fun process too hey, um, you know it's i our staff um universally enjoy the work and uh, the providers some of them aren't too keen on the um, the concept initially but I, I mostly from the practice they found it very beneficial because I, I do think they find that the improved documentation and improvement in the problem list actually improves their their clinical workflow hmm. yeah 
surprise, surprise, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to shift the conversation a little to talk about some diagnoses. And one, when you're looking at risk adjustment is the documentation of diabetes, just because the coding can be complex related to that. Um, what are you seeing related to educational need or a focus related to the documentation of diabetes in your practices? Diabetes, diabetes is probably, for anybody who's new to this space, is probably one of the greatest opportunities you have for improvement. Mm -hmm. uh, there's generally a high prevalence of the condition in most peer groups that you'll take care of, and you'll probably find that there's an opportunity for improvement in risk capture, and generally that's the opportunity resides in distinguishing between category 19 diabetes without complication and category 18 diabetes with. Um, I think you're, you're spot on, uh, Lori, that pro providers want to get it right, but coding for diabetes is challenging. There's, I had to go look, but there's 186 permutations when you just consider type 1 or type 2, and I think there's 453 if you take in all diabetic etiologies. And the typical EMR will often front abbreviated search lists on terms, and they're generally physician friendly. And I have those in, you know, ear quotes, because they they tend to be generic uh, codes that map to controlled type one or two, which falls into the lowest risk adjusted category, and often providers land on that. Um, I think probably the the greatest opportunity in the office setting to have immediate impact is. Um, identifying patients with hyperglycemia. Uh, it's frequently encountered. It falls into category 18. It's relatively easy to define, and it carries almost triple the risk adjustment over controlled diabetes. And I think when you couple that with the fact that providers are unaware of this, I think it contributes to the loss of the risk capture. I also think it's an important distinction because glucose control, I you know, I personally think to be on the forefront of everyone's mind when managing a diabetic and calling it out on progress notes and putting it on problems, problem list brings it to top of mind for anyone right. caring. And then we've also used our OCDI team to educate that the level of control also impacts quality measures that may impact your ACO engagement or your heat of star ratings. And again, I think uh, providers are often unaware of that. There's There's obviously other opportunities in diabetic documentation and coding, but we found this to be the most straightforward first step uh, as you take baby steps in this space. Yeah, um, good job. I, I, everywhere I go, it's a challenge, and you would you wouldn't think that it would need to be. Um, diabetes is so prevalent, but it, I know it's so confusing to the physicians. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, let's let's continue along this topic. Um, we asked in the poll, and I'm curious about. Um, you know, major depressive disorders, substance use disorders. I know these are, as I understand, another typical source of CDI clarifications in those uh, ambulatory locations, physician practice clinics. Um, are these, is it, is it because these are overlooked? Are physicians reluctant to sometimes document that? I've heard about labeling physician uh, patients, perhaps. Uh, curious why these perhaps are a problem area and, and, and how they can impact the, the risk score as well. Yeah, yeah I, I think you kind of hit on many of them, Brian. Um, I think both major depressive and substance use disorders carry, well, both of them carry um, similar risk adjustment impact and both are on par with diabetes with acute or chronic complications. And we're seeing that it's a common opportunity for improved documentation coding. Um, 
both these categories raise similar documentation coding issues for providers. Part of it is the way we clinically assess and treat and the language we use is at times, uh, I think at odds with the official wording of the applicable terms. And then on top of that, I think it's confusing or providers aren't clear on what the definitions mean. And, you know, my experience is that providers are generally conflict adverse. So if they aren't sure, they'll default to a lower level of service or a more generic term to describe what they're treating. Uh, major depression, for me, is another one of those uh, instances where physician-friendly versions in the EMR on searches will, will drive a provider to simple major depression, which is not risk-adjusted. And, and, and so I think basically the EMR kind of uh, encourages that by uh, self-selected searches. Uh, we think in terms of depression with mild symptom severity, as identified by PHQ-9, but then we find a term search that says major depression with mild severity, but they're not equivalent. You know, adding to that confusion, um, you know, the provider needs to be specific and comfortable about making choices about single versus recurrent, uh, the depression severity, and, and then remission status. So it's, I, it's, to me, it's not a complete surprise that providers err in just broadly choosing a non-risk-adjusted uh, option. Uh, in a similar vein, um, the ICD-10 language characterizes substance disorders as use, abuse, and dependence, but, but clinically we think of them as use disorders, as mild, moderate, and severe. I think the connection between those two worlds isn't always clearly understood. Mm -hmm. And some providers are hesitant to use the terms, especially the ICD-10 words, because mild use disorder maps into abuse. And I think you hit on it before, uh, Brian, is that you know patients can read their information in the patient portal, and uh, I think there's some fear for repercussions from that. I, I find it curious that in 2019, with the final announcement, CMS actually reworded the HCC 55 and 56 to contain the use disorder words of mild, moderate, and severe. I, I think to be more consistent with clinical management, but unfortunately, the ICD-10 wording didn't change. So one of the things we've done here is we actually have uh, modified the wording of those terms to use uh, that the, the, the use disorder language. And I think it's helped providers identify the term they want. And then when they're, we have then a, a patient-friendly version of it in the portal that is more consistent and probably more uh, readily accepted. I, I think OCDI helps tremendously uh, giving the providers the confidence to make these choices and, and not only that, but on how to do it. That's great. You know, I'm I'm listening to you and you're talking about moving the physicians to more specific diagnoses to avoid those incomplete or imprecise descriptions of of conditions. Um, you got any tips or strategies that you could share with us on on how to help the physicians through that when they're, you know, trying to move through 30, 40 patients a day, depending on what their office is like? Yeah, that's a great point. I don't know if, if my answer is super uh, um, specific, uh, Laurie, but I, you know, risk-adjusted coding in the ambulatory practice, I think, is a challenge. I, you know, one, I think the vast majority of HCC risk capture is is done by the provider. Uh, they have to say the magic words, and then they have to match it with the correct code. Uh, they're trying to accomplish that with no formal coding training, and the tools they have in the EMR are not on par with an encoder. Uh, there's 83 condition categories this year and soon to be 86 next year. 
And as you point out, I think that can be daunting for anybody, but particularly busy providers. So I think as an organization, um, rather than try to boil the ocean, you know, to coin a term, I, there are areas or pockets of focused uh, opportunity, and, and that's where you should uh, uh, set your efforts in, uh, to begin with. You want to educate and provide the tools necessary for the provider to be successful at the point of care. Uh, as I kind of pointed out, many EMRs have tools to help in the space that don't even know they exist. So I, probably the single most important thing you can do is educate them on, on, on uh, unveiling those tools. And then, you know, to sustain um, improvement in the space, you need to provide timely feedback. Um, I think providers generally want to get it right. And, you know, you should celebrate success. And those that are underperforming, I wouldn't assume that they're not really in, engaged. They may need more help or they may actually have a practice that's truly different and they, they aren't going to have higher mm -hmm. uh, uh, risk-adjusted coding. Good yeah. points. Yeah, all good stuff there, Dr. Mans. You know, I thought we could maybe just wrap up quickly here before we move on to uh, our, our poll question. Uh, any, uh, you're going to be presenting, of course, in full for, I believe, a full hour at our symposium coming up uh, November 14, 15 in Austin. Any Anything that you'll be covering uh, on that, on that uh, at the conference that, uh, that our listeners today that might be attending can expect? Maybe a little bit of an advanced preview. Yeah, sure. I, you know, what I hope to probably give a little more detail on the ones we covered today, and and some actual guidance on help on how to, um, you know, clinically bridge the gap between what I like to call coder speak and in the clinical world. Uh, there's a few other high value um, or opportunity categories they touch on, and and some uh, miscellaneous categories, if you will. And then I kind of end on spending a little time on the risk side of things, which, you know, these are conditions providers will code in the ambulatory space that really shouldn't be occurring there, but it's a uh, common areas like stroke and things like that. Right. Well, that sounds great. I'm really looking forward to it. All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump back to our poll here. So again, we asked folks, uh, what outpatient diagnoses are your most frequent source of clarifications? I believe you should all be seeing that now. So here, here are our results. Uh, not Probably not surprisingly, majority of our listeners are not yet involved in outpatient CDI. That comes in at 70%. Um, that's about consistent with what we're seeing with our polling, but that number is starting to grow. That is a 30% are and then that's that's a little bigger than it has been in the past. But of those that are clarifying in this space now, um, diabetes and or obesity is, is came out on top at 13%, followed by disorders at 8%, cancers at 5%, and 3% other. Um, I'll go ahead and just check what those were in a moment here. But any any uh, initial thoughts here, Dr. Manns, on the on the poll? Uh, I'm not surprised, uh, you know, Mayo Clinic didn't get involved with OCDI in, 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 except in the last couple of years, so I'm not surprised that people are coming to this. I do think that's going to be uh, progressively more and more um, the case that people will, will need to engage in this space since so much will tie to pay for performance type uh, uh, programs. Right. Um, uh, all the categories you have up there, I don't know what the others are that you got, you know, will be things I touch on. Uh, someone mentioned clarification of uncertain diagnoses in general. Someone else wrote 
uh, GI procedures, colonoscopies was another one. Um, those were a, just sort of a couple that had crept in that folks mentioned. Any thoughts on this, Laurie? Or? Um, I'm wondering with the GI procedures is if the issue is the physician isn't capturing the reason for the procedure. So a, a clear diagnosis as to why the procedure is being performed, that would be my guess, hmm. um, which could hit you with medical necessity and payment, especially from your commercial payers. So I'm assuming that's what the individual is touching on. Right. Yeah, that would be interesting to know. If, if you're out there listener, feel free to follow up with, uh, uh, with us after the show. All right. Well, at this point, we are going to move to our um, In the News segment. Uh, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Uh, speaking of outpatient CDI, uh, two weeks ago, CMS released the 2020 OPPS proposed rule, as well as the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, which drop around the same time. Um, what I'm showing on your screen now is a fact sheet. This is from CMS.gov's newsroom. Uh, it's it's kind of a nice summary of what's in that rule. Of course, the rule itself is a is a very lengthy document that uh, you know is is worth reviewing, but we can't cover that today. I'm just going to hit on a a few highlights here. Um, in general, you know, a lot in here about pricing reform. One of the big proposals being proposed by CMS this year uh, is, is moving hospitals towards pricing transparency, uh, making sure that customers have um, the ability to see what prices are and be able to shop for services um, if they can, depending on whether where they are and their access to hospitals, of course. But um, for example, CMS is requiring, well, is proposing, I should say, again, these are proposals, but is proposing that hospitals have a, uh, make public a machine-readable file online that includes all standard charges for all hospital items and services, as well as um, making public payer-specific negotiated charges for a limited set of shoppable services that they have to display and package in a consumer-friendly manner. As I was looking through this, this includes, you know, charges for services with an associated CPT, HCPCS, or even DRG. So that that would be interesting to see that uh, some of these come online. Um, you know, and CMS is putting some teeth into this. They said they're going to monitor for hospital noncompliance and impose actions, including essentially a warning notice, corrective action plan, and or civil monetary penalties for hospitals that that are not providing these online. So that's very interesting. Um, CMS is also proposing some procedures. Uh, one actually come off the inpatient only list, uh, which is uh, total knee arthroplasty, excuse me. Uh, so that's being proposed to be uh, provided in an outpatient setting or ambulatory setting. Um, there's also a lot in here about leveling the payment for hospital clinics. They're currently paid under the OPPS at a higher rate, but, but reducing that to the same rate as the physician office setting. That's been a very contentious point mm -hmm. with the AHA fighting that because, you know, these clinics or it's hospital-based, you know, they think they have a different, they're more expensive to operate and they should be paid at a higher rate. Um, 
So uh, really a lot in here, This and, and that's just the OPPS, the, the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, which I mentioned is released at the same time. They have um, some changes here to E&M coding and payment. Uh, they're talking about five payment rates for all five levels of coding to align with the AMA's CPT guidance. You may recall that there was some, a proposal in the past to um, condense those into rates for level one, single rate for level two through four. So kind of walking that back. Um, I'm showing here now a summary on Becker's Hospital Review, which has just some nice uh, breakdown of this in a very readable manner if you don't want to wade through that whole rule. There's also stuff in here about telehealth services, um, some medical record documentation reduction, which should raise the ears of CDI professionals. Um, this proposed rule would allow physicians, physician assistants, NPs, clinical nurse specialists, certified nurse midwives to review and verify information in a patient's medical record that's entered by other clinicians rather than having to re-enter that information. So CMS trying to reduce some of the, the burden here, highlighting that section here. Um, so a lot there to check out in the OPPS proposed and uh, Medicare physician fee schedule. Um, Dr. Manz, I don't know if you had any any comments on or thoughts on this, whether you had a chance to take a look at these yet. Well, I haven't looked at it in, in, in detail. I, I I would point out that I think the E&M coding is already of high interest in the practice for support right now. And with the evolving changes proposed, I see OCDI as a key player in educating the practice on how to confidently adopt the new criteria. And then my other... Um, comment is that uh, as an orthopedist and, and I'm the physician advisor for case management in our facility, when they took total knees off the inpatient only list uh, last year, I, you know, that's, that's created uh, challenges and, and with them proposing total hips and then there are some fusion codes and uh, laminectomies that uh, I don't think that's going to make that any easier for any of us. Right. I would agree with that completely. <laughs> All right. Let's just wrap up here very quickly. I know we're at the top of the hour with a brief ACTUS update. Uh, so again, our symposium is coming up this November 14 and 15 in Austin, Texas. I'm showing you just a page on the website where this live. This is under events and networking, excuse me, events and education. And if you click ACTUS Symposium, you can find a lot more about this program. Um, I did want to highlight briefly just one speaker we're having, I think will be of, of particular interest to attendees of this program. We're having Christopher Brissett. He is an auditor with the OIG, um, who's going to be presenting on the morning of day two of the program. They were involved um, in a review of a Medicare Advantage organization, Essence Healthcare, and found some um, high-risk, reviewed some high-risk diagnosis codes and uh, incurred a penalty for uh, some unsupported codes um, that weren't in compliance with risk adjustment um, submission criteria and, and requirements. So very interested to hear from the OIG. It's always good to hear right from the top and from the, uh, the top auditors in this space. Becoming more and more of an issue as more hospitals, of course, are moving towards Medicare Advantage payments and uh, risk-adjusted risk contracts. So very pleased to have the OIG at this conference. Again, I'll be reviewing these speakers um, more in, in more detail over the next couple weeks. I did want to say we have one really fun thing going on right now. Um, so our early bird for this program expires on September 20th. So you do have a, a, a month 
to uh, take advantage of that early bird discount. It's an extra $100 off. If you do, you're going to be entered into a drawing for uh, a free brewery tour. So four lucky attendees of our conference, yes, I'm hawking beer on the Actors Podcast, uh, will be entered into a brewery tour. Um, I'm going to just show that quickly here, Austin Brewery Tours. Uh, I'm very excited about this. I'm a big fan of craft beer. You can probably tell by looking at me. Um, <laughs> but we are we are doing this. And again, if you do sign up for the early bird, how it works is you'll just be entered automatically. All right, you don't have to sign up for this on this page or anywhere else. If you do sign up early bird, we're going to put you in for that drawing. So maybe some incentive to get get to this program. If there wasn't enough already listening to Dr. Manns, now you can now you can fold in a trip to the brewery. Um, <laughs> so check that out. And that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus Podcast. Um, this is our next show. We'll be back, of course, in two weeks with another program on uh, best practices from the trenches, a couple of folks that are running successful programs of their own. As always, if you have any suggestions for guests, ideas about the format of the show, you probably know how to reach me, but it's bmurphy at actus.org. Keep those ideas coming. Thank you, Dr. Manns, for being on today's show. Outstanding job. Hopefully not your last time. And uh, for our listeners, we'll see you back here again in two weeks. Well, Take thanks care, so much for having me on. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.